Well, let me go ahead and jump into our message today uh, because we're going to start, we're, we're, we're finishing up wholehearted today. We're finishing up James, uh, but we're going to start in Matthew 18. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. And I'll tell you this too, like I said, this is our last Sunday in James in the Wholehearted series. If you've missed any of the sermons, guess where you can go to listen to them? The website. Yes, y'all got it. You're doing great. You can go to our website and catch up on those, but go ahead and turn to Matthew 18, 12 through 14, uh, page 681, I believe is where it is, uh, Matthew 18, um, 12 through 14, yeah, there it is, page 681 um, in the Bible in front of you, and I'm going to give you a little context for what's going on uh, before we get to verse 12, because what's happened in this section of Matthew, is the disciples have just asked Jesus what they consider to be an incredibly important decision, right? They have just asked Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the greatest in the kingdom? In other words, these disciples are asking Jesus, Jesus, when you take over, he'll be sitting next to you. Which one of us is going to be sitting next to you when that time comes? That's what their question is. Who's the greatest? Now, here's what's funny. I fully expect that they expected Jesus to say a name. Peter, you're going to be sitting right next to me. John, James, y'all are going to be sitting right next to me. He doesn't. Instead, he, he, he shows them who is the greatest. And he says, bring the kids to me. And so Jesus gathers kids around him, and he tells his disciples, strive to be like these little kids. And here's what he meant by it. Kids, you know, you, you pull the kids together and you have this picture with Jesus sitting there and kids around him. And the kids are there to be with Jesus. The kids are there to learn from Jesus. The kids are there because they trust Jesus and they trust the mom and dad that let them go to Jesus. And, and that's what you see in kids. And in kids, you see this, this trust of their parents. And sometimes you see this fierce loyalty of their parents. Like little kids, when you put food on the table, now even if they don't like it, they at least trust that you're not poisoning them with it. They may act like you're poisoning them with it, but they don't think that you're poisoning with it, right? Because they trust that you're going to give them at least something that's not deadly, right? It may not be good, but it's not deadly. See, kids trust. Kids ask you a million questions, don't they? How many of you have kids whose who, how many of your, you parents have kids that just ask question after question after question after question? Yes. They do that because they want to learn. And they're asking you the questions because they want to learn from you. You see, Jesus is, has these kids around him and he's teaching the disciples, be like these kids. They're humble and they learn. They're humble learners. Be like these kids. That's how you're the greatest in the kingdom is that you learn from Jesus. You have this humility and you learn. Then he does this little quick teaching about false teachers. Because he knows if, if you have a, a kid who's sitting under a teacher and they're teaching something false, if you have this humble learner who's, teaching under, who's sitting under a false teacher, but they're going to believe him. And Jesus says, listen, don't be a false teacher. It'd be better. That's the part where he talks about it's better to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the, into the sea than to be one of these false teachers because he wants these disciples to realize there is this responsibility in teaching the word of God. Honestly, this is what, this is what keeps me up on Saturday nights and as I'm preparing the messages is to make sure my words match these words. 
When Jesus said they'll have a millstone tied around their neck, it doesn't mean, um, I mean, it does mean, you know, like, like they don't need to be there, but here's why. Like when someone dies, they put a tombstone over their grave, right, to mark that they had a life. If somebody has a millstone tied around their neck and they're thrown in the sea, there's nothing to mark their lives. Because Jesus' point is that it's truth that leaves a legacy, not error. Error fades away and dies. Truth leaves a legacy. Well, then when Jesus finished talking about, when Jesus finished, finishes talking about these false teachers, he does this other teaching. So he goes from humble learner to false teachers to what do you do when a humble learner wanders away from the truth? Because that's what happens sometimes, isn't it? When you're in church or even in your own spiritual life, sometimes even the humblest of learner can wander from the truth. You see, Jesus doesn't talk about kids anymore. He talks about sheep. Now look at what he says in Matthew 18, verse 12. He says, what do you think? If a man who has a hundred sheep, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And so what Jesus is highlighting is this very pastoral scene, like literally in a pasture where, where a shepherd counts their sheep. Now, how, do we have any teachers in the room? Yes. Do we have any parents in the room that have gone on a field trip with teachers? <laughs> Here's what happens. If you're a teacher or you're a parent chaperone on that field trip, you know what you're doing all day long? Counting heads. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, That's what a shepherd does is they're counting the sheep all day long. And Jesus says, if he's counting the sheep or she's counting the sheep, and all of a sudden one of them is gone, they have a new job. And their job is to go get that sheep that's gone. And, and, and here's why. Here's why you go after the one that left. Let me tell you about sheep. And I mean this, I mean this in the most sincere, kind way that I can think of. But sheep have got to be one of the most pathetic creatures in all of God's creation. And here's why. Like, they can't do anything. They can't protect themselves. They, they, if they are attacked, they, have, they don't have sharp teeth to fend off the attacker. They have no way to defend themselves. They don't have horns. They don't have claws. They are completely defenseless. Y'all, even a skunk has stuff it sprays. To scare off an enemy. There are frogs that have this toxin on them that make them taste bad. So if something tries to bite them, they spit them out so they can go on about their life. Even a sloth has claws and can climb up a tree, slowly, but can climb up a tree to escape an enemy. Sheep, sheep can't do that. It's why there's never a mascot for a high school football team of a sheep. Right? There's no cheerleader saying we are the mighty sheep. Because they're not. Here's what we do as sheep. We count sheep to do what? Go to sleep. That's what sheep do. They, sheep have no way to defend themselves. And here's why. Sheep are not designed to be fighters. Sheep are designed 
to need each other and to need a shepherd. Sheep are designed to be in a flock and to be under the safety of a shepherd. Because you see, that is the only place that a sheep is safe, is when they're with the flock and when they're under a shepherd. When a sheep is alone, he's got nothing. He is open to his enemies. He is easy kill. And that's why the shepherd must go find him. Because y'all, being alone is the most dangerous place a sheep can be. Now, we're a group of humble learners here. Let me ask you a question. Was Jesus just talking about sheep? No, he wasn't. Right? He was talking about the kingdom of God. And if you were one of Jesus' disciples then, you would have heard him and you would have been a humble enough learner to know, wait a second, he's not talking about sheep. And you would have interpreted it as the nation of Israel under this covenant relationship with God. We now know and have this new covenant and we know that, that when Jesus is talking about sheep, he is talking about any follower of Jesus. And he is saying that, that any follower of Jesus can wander. And so here's what's scary. All the stuff that I said about sheep, it's true of you and me. Because, right, was Jesus talking about sheep? No, he was talking about us. And so if it's true of you and me, the safest place for you is with the people of God. The safest place for you, you are designed to need a flock and to need a shepherd. And so for you, being alone is the most dangerous place a follower of Jesus can be. See, and just like sheep wander off and they need to be brought back by someone else because there's safety when we're together and there's danger when we're apart. Are we agreed on that? And see, with all of this, keep your finger... Wait, hold on. I just asked a question and nobody said anything. I just realized that. I talk too fast sometimes. Are we agreed that we're designed and the safest place we can be is when we're together and when we're under a shepherd? Are we in agreement with that? Good, because that's important a little bit later. So with all that, keep your finger right there on Matthew and turn to James chapter 5. And let's look at our text today. If you're using the Bible that's in front of you, we're James chapter 5, 19 and 20. It's page 853. You can also download the Bible app, and we're in there under events and under Fellowship Asheville. As you're turning there, I want you to listen and see if this sounds familiar. James chapter 5, verse 19, James says this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, Now, here's what's interesting. James is Jesus' little brother, half-little brother. And uh, he grew up hearing Jesus teach and grew up hearing people talk about his big brother's teachings. And so what we see in Matthew 18 very much formed what James says here in chapter 5, verse 19. Doesn't it sound familiar? If anyone wanders from the truth... It's Jesus talking about that sheep, that sheep who leaves the flock. And now James is addressing these these humble learners, but look at what he says. Look at your Bible and fill in the blank here. He says, my brother, if who? What word does he use? Anyone. If any one of you wanders from the truth 
And so here's our very first point that we need to understand as we talk about people wandering from the truth, and it's this. Anyone can wander from the truth. Now, raise your hand if you're in anyone. Yeah. James is saying, guess what, sheep? Guess what, people of God? Even the humblest of learners can wander from the truth. That you're never too holy, you're never too mature to outgrow your ability to wander from the truth. And how do I know that? Not only my personal experience, but this book of James is written to people who have wandered from the truth. Now, we've used the term wholehearted and divided heart, and we've talked about what happens when you're, you're not walking in the fullness of your faith in the gospel, but your heart's divided. James talks about words like the tongue, and he talked about, he talked about gossiping and boasting, and he talked about speaking the truth. He's talked about jealousy. He's talked about favoritism. He's talked about money having too high of a place in your heart. He's talked about, he's talked about letting social status determine your identity instead of what Jesus has done determining your identity. He's talked about mixing up works and faith and getting those out of order. All of these things that he's talking about are wanderings from the truth. And here's the deal. I bet if you've been attending here and you've been listening to some of these sermons, maybe one or two of them hit a little close to home for you. If it did, guess what? Jesus was showing you a place where you've wandered from the truth. You see, it's not just anyone who can wander from the truth. You can wander from the truth. Now, the picture you may have of wandering from the truth, maybe it's bigger than what James is doing here because maybe your picture of wandering from the truth is, is more along the lines of, well, they leave the church or they leave the faith. But James has a very different picture here. It isn't just, it isn't just when you leave the church or just when you deny your faith or leave the faith. It is, it is any time that you choose favoritism over compassion. It's any time that you choose boasting over trust. It's any time that you choose a half-truth instead of the truth. It's any time you choose gossip over compassion or letting what you do define you instead of what Jesus has done define you. Any time you do that, you wander from the truth because this is sin. And you see, any sin in which you partake, no matter how big, no matter how small, is a wandering from the truth, and it's a divided heart. This is why James says, listen, y'all, anyone can wander. This is why James says, you can wander from the truth. But look at what else he says can happen. Look at verse 19. It says, my brothers, if any, one of, if any one among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. Now, in the, in the Greek, the, the word for anyone and the word for someone is actually the same word. But, you know, in English, we don't like to repeat ourselves very often, so we, so we mix it up a little bit. But it's the, same, it's the same word. And so with this, there's good news and there's bad news. And it's this, anyone can wander from the truth and anyone can help a wanderer return to the truth. The bad news and the good news. 
You can wander, but you can also help. You can help the wanderer return to the truth. You see, we can all sin and wander from the truth, and we got that. We all agreed on that. But this part, too, is that you can also be the anyone who can help someone come back to the truth. Now, just to refresh us, raise your hand if you're an anyone. Right? You can help someone come back. Now, you're wondering how this works? Turn back to Matthew 18, because guess what Jesus teaches on next? After he teaches about this shepherd going to go get the lost sheep, he teaches on what do you do when you find that lost sheep, assuming we're not talking about sheep anymore. Now, these verses in Matthew 18, Matthew 18, 15 through 17, a lot of times, <coughs> excuse me, are called the church discipline verses because it's how a church exercises discipline. At Fellowship, we don't call it church discipline. We call it church restoration because that's the goal. That's what the gospel does. The gospel wants us restored, and we'll use discipline to do that. But the goal isn't the discipline. The goal is restoration. And so what Jesus does is he tells his disciples and those listening to him, who's the greatest? These kids, these people that that learn humbly. So therefore, be a good teacher to them, not a bad teacher to them. Teach righteousness and truth, not, not your own thoughts and whimsies. And what do you do if one of them does wander off? You go get them. And then what do you do when you get them? You do this. Look at verse 15. It says, If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, y'all, this is a critical step for us as a church. Right? That if we see someone wandering that we go to them one-on-one. And y'all, and I say this is a critical step because if we don't get this right, literally all hell breaks loose in a congregation because gossip and slander and rumors begin to rule over a congregation and it is like a wildfire. Notice what Jesus says says to his disciples, he says, if you see someone sin or they sin against you, no matter the sin and no matter how small, you go where? To the person. To the person. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say you call your friend and tell him about it. He doesn't say you call your pastor and tell them about it. He doesn't say you put their name on the prayer chain with a bless their heart. That's what we do in the South, right? He says you go to the person. Now, I know some of you, because some of the feedback I heard is like, Fred, sometimes, though, I just need to call somebody and without sharing names, but just let them know the situation and just get feedback to see if I need to go talk to them. Let me tell you, church, if you feel like you need to get feedback from someone, that means you need to go talk to them. That's your indicator. And Jesus says, go to them one-on-one and talk to them. Because the advantage is that they can hear you and repent. And they can turn away from you. You know, the difference between confession and repentance, confession is acknowledging the sin. Repentance is turning away from it. And it gives them an opportunity to confess, to see it as sin, and to turn away from it. 
And when that happens, a wanderer comes back to the truth. And y'all, I've got to tell you, this is not research-based, but I will say 99.9% of the time, that's what happens here at Fellowship. That first step, when someone goes to someone and says, I think what you did to me, or I think what I saw when I saw you do this, I think that was sinful, and here's why. God's Word says this, and Jesus has died for us, so, so, so let's trust the Spirit and move in that, and, and what do you think? And they go, oh my gosh, I didn't even think about it that way. Yes, I am so sorry. And there's confession and there's repentance. You see, that's that's what happens. The wanderer comes back to the truth, and many times that happens in this very first step. And I know when we read this, if you've been in church for a while, we get scared of the next step, that it's automatically going to go there, but so many times it doesn't. It stops at a simple conversation, and there's healing, and there's restoration, and there's movement forward. I'll give you a picture of what this looks like. I was talking to uh, um, uh, a friend here at church who had been in the choir for decades, been in a choir, uh, not, not here. They had lived somewhere else and moved here. and For decades, they were in this choir. Loved it. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Sang next to the same person for 11 years. And I said, gosh, what was that like, like singing next to the same, you know, what a, what a great friendship, and, and what was that like? And, and she said, oh, it was great. She said, during practice, this was during practice, she said, you know, if I was singing the wrong note or in the wrong key or whatever, however that works, I don't, I don't know the difference between a note and a key, but, 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 um, um, but she said, if I was singing off, she would help me. And if she was singing off, I would help her. And so for 11 years, we had somebody right next to us that could help us. That's all Jesus is talking about. He's saying, you've got people next to you. Y'all help each other. Nobody's expecting you to get this right. Nobody. So help each other. Do it better. When somebody wanders, talk to them. You see, because remember, church, where is the most dangerous place a sheep can be? Alone. You see, we help each other return to the truth. And at fellowship, this happens oftentimes in the most loving, casual, and truthful ways. But what happens? What happens if the person wandering doesn't see their wandering as sin? What happens when we reach out to help each other and it's not reciprocated? Well, Jesus addresses it. Look, look at the rest of this. Matthew 18, verse 16, he says, But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. So what Jesus is saying is like, listen, if you go to them one-on-one and they say, no, you're wrong, this is not sin. And you've got your Bible open and y'all are looking at God's word where it clearly says it's sin. And they say, no, mm -mm, uh -uh, not for me. Jesus says, guess what? You don't get to give up. You go to them again and this time with other people who saw the same thing or other people who've seen that trend in their life. And you go to them and and they say, yeah, actually God's word does say say this is sin. It's very clear. 
And if they still say no to that, then it goes to a larger audience. It goes to the elders or a growth group or, uh, you know, we're not going to usually stand up here and say it in church unless it's me or Nick or one of the leading staff public, you know, if it's a public sin, it deserves a public confession. But y'all are pretty free and clear. We're not going to stand you up in front of the church. But the point is, you don't give up. And when Jesus says you treat them as a tax collector or a Gentile, what he's not saying is that you sever ties with them. What he's saying is that you keep reintroducing them to the gospel again. Because that is the path of their restoration. You treat them as someone who's never heard the gospel, which means you, you get creative in how you talk to them. You're, you're still in their life. You don't, you don't shun them. You keep going back and drawing them to the gospel because... Turn back to James and let's see what's at stake if we don't. Let's see why this is such a critical, critical step. Look at James chapter 5. In verse 20, it says this. It says, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. Y'all, we are like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven words from the end of the book. And James drops this bomb on us. You will save their soul from death. Y'all, where is the most dangerous place a sheep can be? Alone. Why? Because it's deadly. Do you realize Scripture says that we have an enemy and he prowls around like a lion looking for someone to destroy. Guess who his easiest target is? The person who is alone. The person who has left the flock of God. Have you ever seen one of those documentaries of a lion or a lioness attacking their prey? Or have you ever seen your cat go after a toy? It's very similar, only not in size, but very similar. Right? Right? And, and, and that lion will see the prey. And they never go after the flock. They go after the one that's by itself. And they slowly creep through the savanna. When they get close to the prey, you see, them, you see them hunker down, right? And then they slowly move. And then all of a sudden, they pounce. And it's like that. That's what our enemy does, which is why the most dangerous place for us to be is alone. Because this death that James is talking about, John talks about it in 1 John 5.16. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 3.15. And it is this spiritual death that happens when we are alone. Because what happens when we wander is this, an unrepentant wanderer wanders further and further from the truth. They stop listening to the Spirit of God. They stop obeying. They stop living lives of holiness. And when that happens, the Spirit inside of them, Paul says that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, the Spirit inside of us gets quieter and quieter and our spiritual life dies. Now, is James talking about physical death too? Maybe. I'll be honest. As a pastor, I've seen it happen. I've seen a person wander from the faith and death is imminent because they're in a dangerous space. But James's point here is that wandering from the truth has real danger. And look at verse 20. 
The rest of verse 20 says, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover over a multitude of sins. When we wander, there is salvation to bring us back because we're no longer in the danger that we were in before. And what James references here is this, is this, uh, this, this um, ceremony called the Day of Atonement that they would do in the temple. It's found in Leviticus 16. And, and what the priest would do is they'd make a sacrifice and they would take the blood of that sacrifice and they'd sprinkle it over the temple. And as they did, they would confess the sins of the people. And it was this idea that there is a sacrifice required for your forgiveness. And the benefit of that sacrifice is that not only is the nation of Israel forgiven, the temple is clean. And it was this picture of complete forgiveness. And it lasted a year until the next day of atonement. And their religion, their faith was based on these sacrifices doing what the scriptures said they would do. And they would do not only the Day of Atonement, they would make other sacrifices for sin because their forgiveness was available only through that sacrifice, only through the faith that that sacrifice did what the scriptures said it was going to do. And so somehow... This wanderer returning is linked to this forgiveness. Well, if we were to turn back to Matthew 18, which we're not, I'm just going to tell you. I mean, you can if you want. Guess what Jesus talks about next? Forgiveness. So he told, the disciples came to him and said, who's the greatest? And he said, the kids, don't be a false teacher. Here's what you do. Some of you are going to wander. When you do, those of you who haven't wandered, go get them. And then Peter comes up to him. And I think this is where Peter's showing his cards in Matthew 18. I think Peter might have been the disciple that either asked who's the greatest or the one that kind of nudged somebody to ask. Because Peter comes up to Jesus and says, okay. Actually, I'm going I'm to turn to it because I don't want to get the words wrong. Um, it says in verse 21, it says, Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? In other words, here's what he's saying. Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And then Jesus goes through this talk about wandering and all this stuff. And then Peter says, <clears throat> yeah, that's great. Listen, here's the deal. These guys that you put me with keep sinning against me. Now, what's missing in this question? Peter's own sin, right? He's saying, they keep sinning against me. How often do I have to forgive them? And he thinks he's being very generous. Seven times, right? Well, Jesus does what Jesus do, and he says, let me tell you a story there, Peter. This is the Fred Baker paraphrase. He says, let me tell you a story there, Peter. There was this guy who had a debt that he couldn't pay. Like, he had such a big debt. If he worked every day in his life and gave the money to his master, he couldn't repay it. But yet the master one day said, I need to be repaid. And he called him to him and said, hey, I need that money now. And the servant goes, I, I don't have it. Because he knew that, that if the master said to be repaid and he didn't have it, he could be thrown in jail, he could be killed. Like there's all kinds of bad things. Well, then you know what the master did, Peter? The master let him go free and said, your debt has been paid, your debt has been forgiven, go. And Jesus, you know, in my paraphrase, 
says, Peter, how does that, how does that feel? Oh, that feels great. Well, let me tell you what this joker does then. So this joker leaves his master, and there's a guy who borrowed a buck from him yesterday to buy a burger. And he goes to that guy and says, hey, I need my buck back. And the guy says, I don't have it today. Peter, you know what that joker did? He strangled that guy. He fought that guy and wanted that guy thrown in jail. The master heard about it and pulled him back in and said, how in the world can you do that? You have been forgiven everything, and now you want to go and get that $1 from that guy and have him thrown in jail? You've been forgiven. You need to forgive. You see, Jesus wanted Peter and the disciples to know that they can forgive much. They can forgive more than seven. They can actually forgive 70 times seven times. They can forgive much because they've been forgiven much. And so for Peter, the question isn't how much do I need to forgive them? The question is, Peter, how much have you been forgiven? Answer that question, and then you'll know the answer to the next question. You see, this question of forgiveness that's linked to someone coming back is so critically important because, y'all, we get to be the place, this gospel-centered place, the place where the gospel gives us life and fuel that we have been forgiven, so therefore we can forgive, which means we don't hold grudges. Right? When somebody confesses and somebody repents, we don't hold it against them anymore because there's freedom there. There's love there. There's, there's mercy there. And so this question is a gospel-focused question. See, we don't have a priest that yearly sprinkles blood across the church to show that our forgiveness. We have a Savior who died once and for all, and it is done. And his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And his resurrection is what stops sacrifices. If you were Jewish today, you don't make sacrifices anymore. There is no place to make sacrifices. Do you know why? Because they don't need them. The sacrifice has been made. That's our gospel. So church, let me ask you, did Jesus die and was he resurrected to pay for the penalty of and remove the power of all of your sin or some of it? All of it. So can you forgive someone for part of what they did or can you forgive someone for all that they've done? That's a harder question, isn't it? The answer is the same, but it's a harder question. And Jesus and James are intentionally linking this forgiveness with the ability for someone to, restore, to be restored. Because y'all listen, nobody wants to be restored without forgiveness. Who would walk back into that? Who would walk back into a group of people or to a relationship where it's like, yeah, you can come, but we're never going to let you live down what you did? I wouldn't do that. Would you? No. That's not biblical forgiveness. That's not gospel forgiveness. Gospel forgiveness doesn't hold someone's sin against them when there's been confession and when there's been repentance. We don't hold it against them. Now, if they haven't confessed and repented, guess what? They're still in that restoration process. There's forgiveness there, but that confession and repentance is what restores relationships. 
You see, and that's our gospel. That's our good news, that this forgiveness is found in Jesus. And when our forgiveness is found in Jesus, it is complete and it is full. And we are forgiven for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And so because we are forgiven much, we can forgive much. Because you see, church, you can help someone return to the truth because you have returned to the truth time and time again. You have been forgiven and have returned so you can help others return. And if you haven't turned to the truth of the gospel, maybe today is the day that you will do that. And let today be the day that you say yes to Jesus' sacrifice for you and let him pay the penalty for your sins and remove the power of sin in your life because you've realized you can't do that. But many of you have already said yes to Jesus. You've You've already relinquished the right to your life and you've given it to him. And if you have said yes to Jesus, then you have experienced this forgiveness that I'm talking about where everything is forgiven. And I have something for you to consider. It's this. There is no reason to be alone. There is no reason to be alone. There is nothing that you can bring to this church. There's nothing that you can bring to this table that will push you away. There is no reason to be alone. At Fellowship, I've said time and time again, you can be anything except a liar here because the gospel is true and we are forgiven. And because we're forgiven, we can forgive. And so if you are one of those wanderers who has wandered away from the truth, let today be the day that you come back. We've got people on the prayer team up here. I think Trish is on the prayer team today. Is anybody else scheduled today? All right, so we've got Trish up here. If you want somebody to pray for you, you can come up here to me, and I'll be glad to pray for you. You don't have to be alone anymore. If you're a leader of a growth group and you know people who aren't in a growth group, invite them in because they don't have to be alone. If you're not in a growth group or you're not in a focus group, you need to get into one because there's no reason to be alone. And where can you go to get in one? Thank you. Also, is there someone in your life that's wandering and they need your help to come back to the truth? Well, maybe today is the day you reach out to them. Maybe today is the day you help them return. Let's pray. Jesus, you are a very, very good God. As a matter of fact, you define what good is, not us. And in your goodness, you have provided a way of forgiveness and a way of restoration that is only something that you could come up with. Faith. Faith and trust. So, Father, may we be a church that, like those little kids that came to Jesus, we just come to you in full trust of who you are. We learn from you. And, Father, may we bring others with us. And as I prayed last week, if there are walls of pride, may they come down. Father, may we see each other and may we speak to each other with the love and mercy and truth found only in the gospel.